Our witness today is Mark Zuckerberg, founder, chairman, chief executive officer of Facebook. Welcome, Mr. Zuckerberg. Mr. Zuckerberg. Mr. Zuckerberg. Hello, Mr. Zuckerberg. Mr. Zuckerberg, I think we all agree that what happened here was bad. You acknowledged it was a breach of trust. On April 10th, 2018, Mark Zuckerberg faced the Senate's Commerce and Judiciary Committees. The way I explain it to my constituents is that if someone breaks into my apartment with a crowbar and they take my stuff, uh, it's just like if the manager gave them the keys or if they didn't have any locks on the doors, it's still a breach. It's still a break-in. Facebook CEO fielded questions about privacy, data sharing, election influence, and discrimination. In February of 2017, Facebook announced that it would no longer allow certain kinds of ads uh, that um, discriminated on the basis of race, gender, family status, sexual orientation, disability, or veteran status, all categories prohibited by federal law and housing. And yet, after 2017, it was discovered that you could, in fact, place those kinds of ads. And there it was, advertising. Advertising because Facebook is an ad-driven platform and one that nearly brought our democracy to his knees. Here's Senator Dan Sullivan. Facebook, 2 billion users, over 200 million Americans, 40 billion in revenue. I believe you and Google have almost 75% of the digital advertising in the U.S. One of the key issues here is, is Facebook too powerful? Do you think you're too powerful? So we have made a lot of mistakes in running the company. I think it's it's pretty much impossible, I believe, to start a company in your dorm room and then grow it to be at the scale that we're at now without uh, making some mistakes. To catalog them, senators asked Mark Zuckerberg nearly 600 questions over the course of five hours. One thing most everyone agreed upon was that on Facebook, advertising could be weaponized. It could slice up the population, divide us, influence our opinions and our decisions without us knowing it. How did we get here? And how can we find a better and more transparent way forward? I'm Damien Bradfield and this is Influence, a show about advertising, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I spent my early career in advertising and now as the chief creative officer at WeTransfer, I've had the chance to approach advertising from an entirely different perspective, being the buyer and the seller of advertising. I've helped lead WeTransfer's pioneering approach to advertising over the last 10 years. I'm also the author of the book, The Trust Manifesto, What You Need to Do to Create a Better Internet. And we wanted to explore the history and craftsmanship behind the industry as a whole. In this eight-episode season, we'll go deep into the strategy, spin, psychology, and technology that makes an ad stick. We track these patterns through history, from Facebook's influence on our democracy to the wild unknown of the early internet, to the birth of television, to the birth of public relations. Here to talk more about Facebook is Nicholas Thompson. Nick is editor-in-chief of Wired magazine. And back in April, he and the journalist Fred Fochelstein published a massive investigation in Wired. It was an extensive accounting of scandals, backstabbing, resignations and the second massive expose that Nick and Fred had published about Facebook in just over a year. Having spent literally years researching Facebook and other companies similar to Facebook for my own book, I can't wait to get into this topic. It's one very close to my heart and to hear Nick's take. Nick, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me here. It's great to be here. 
But in Facebook, we see a different model of advertising than we've ever seen before, one that even Congress doesn't seem to understand. So perhaps we should just start with the basics. How does Facebook advertising really work? I mean, Facebook created one of the smartest business models in the history of the world. They created a platform where we are incentivized to give them highly personal data from where we live to who we're friends with, to what we read, to what we like, to what we're interested in, to where we are at any given moment. And then it takes that data and targets advertising towards that particular person who they've come to understand based on what we've put on their platform and what they've learned about us elsewhere. And they've created a model where the more data we give them, the more effective their advertising is, therefore making them more money, therefore allowing them to improve the platform, therefore getting us to spend more time on it, therefore making the advertising more targeted, therefore making them more money. And they've used that as one of their virtuous circles of growth, and it's helped turn them into one of the five largest companies in the world. It's, it's fascinating, I think, because, um, you know, so many people are aware of what Facebook is doing, but there is a convenience that underlies everything that sits with Facebook, that even though people are quite conscious, I think, of what Facebook is doing with advertising, it doesn't seem to really put people off, or does it? It's starting to. I think that the targeted ad model, there's been a real backlash in the last year. I mean, one of the interesting things about Facebook is that I think people massively underreacted from the time it was founded until about March of 2018. And then for a brief period, they overreacted. And now I think it's about where it should be. <laughs> so what happened March 2018? Well, that's when the Cambridge Analytica scandal hits. New developments tonight on Cambridge Analytica, the firm that worked for the Trump campaign and tried to influence American voters using information harvested from 50 million Facebook users. CEO Alexander Nix was suspended today following undercover reports from Channel 4 News in the UK showing him bragging about the firm's work on the Trump campaign. So the story of Facebook um, and the way that people think about privacy and the way people worry about the targeted ad model is that from the beginning of Facebook, Facebook essentially expands the boundaries of what they can collect. And they often do it without the users knowing. And they'll often say, we're just collecting this much, but they actually collect a little bit further. Or we're just doing this, but they're actually doing this and that. And users eventually learn, but they don't really react. It doesn't really bother them because what does the targeted ad model do? Well, it just means that I get better recommendations on running shoes. It doesn't actually cause me any harm in the minds of most people. And so for years and years, Facebook's collection of data and Facebook's business model doesn't really annoy anybody. And then suddenly, in March of 2018, it turns out that a lot of the data kind of leaked through this complicated story and came to this dark, shady company called Cambridge Analytica, which may have, in one way or another, helped the Trump campaign. And it suddenly seemed like Facebook was selling all of our personal information to the Russians for the sake of disrupting democracy. And there was just crazy backlash it came in the context of people already starting to feel frustrated and resentful of Silicon Valley. And suddenly Facebook was, you know, thrown into the fire and, you know, they've been sitting there pretty much since. Cambridge Analytica gets, you know, a fair lot of criticism, I think, for its role in this, but it's, it's not only Cambridge Analytica that basically is involved in some of this disruption alongside Facebook. 
Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the story of Facebook and the reason why I've written, you know, whatever it is, 25,000 words about it over the last two years is because the ups and downs of the company, the different actors, the different stories, the different moments are all incredibly dramatic and full of life and characters. And to me, you know, the fateful moment for Facebook, the moment where they're put on this track probably comes in the spring of 2016. And I have a slightly American perspective because I'm an American and I've covered American politics. You know, to me, the, the starting point of the Facebook drama, and you could choose lots of them, comes when they're accused of being biased against Republicans. After this new algorithm was implemented, uh, that there was a tremendous bias against conservative news and content and a favorable bias towards liberal content. Why is Facebook censoring conservative bloggers such as Diamond and Silk? There's an issue of content discrimination. If they're Republicans, if they're in a certain group, uh, there's discrimination and big discrimination. I see it absolutely on Twitter and uh, Facebook, which I have also and others I see. The algorithm they have isn't biased against Republicans. But at that point, they say, OK, Washington is a Republican town. We've been accused of this. We're essentially going to let anything happen on our platform because any action we take to remove false information, misleading advertising, any action we take will come back to haunt us and we will be penalized for it. And so at that moment, that's when Vladimir Putin sort of sets loose his advertising bots. It's when the Macedonian fake news operators start to publish drivel on the platform. It's when political operatives on both sides start to push people to the extremes. It's when the Trump campaign legally, totally legally, uses Facebook's advertising model, the model of targeted advertising, to build its campaign in a hyper-successful way. All those things start to happen in the spring and summer of 2016, and they all lead to what eventually the privacy violations have become uncovered. They lead to the election of Donald Trump, which creates all kinds of, you know, hurricanes throughout the American body politic and throughout the world political system. And they create ultimately the backlash against Silicon Valley. How much do you think it is or was down to Facebook in particular um, for Donald Trump getting elected? There's no doubt that Donald Trump out social media Hillary Clinton. But in particular, do you think that Facebook played a bigger or smaller role compared to Twitter, for example, in, in Donald Trump's election? My ultimate feeling is that they played very different roles. And I'll step back for one second and say that I think that what Facebook does to politics in general is that it makes candidates with a more emotional appeal as opposed to a cerebral appeal, makes them resonate more. And so candidates often on the extreme ends where they trigger very deep emotions, whether it's on the right or on the left, tend to do better on social media. And that actually goes back to the advertising model that we started this conversation with. And the way Facebook works is that they need as much of your time and your data as possible. And so what they did is they created an algorithm, not intentionally, but just over time, to activate deepest emotional responses, or the quickest emotional responses, because that's what tends to make us stay on the site, to make us blindly click through things, to make us comment in outrage. But in any case, this algorithm exists and it helps candidates who, you know, trigger emotional responses in a way that Donald Trump did and Hillary Clinton didn't. So Donald Trump content would resonate more on Facebook, both because people hate him and because 
his supporters love him. So that was one way it helped him. The second way that Facebook helped Donald Trump is through smart use of their advertising platform. So what he would do is he would see who had liked his posts, take their characteristics, match their characteristics, and then sell hats to people who had similar characteristics to the people who liked his posts, then see who bought his hats, and then find people who were similar to the people who bought his hats, and then send them advertising, trying to get them to rallies, and then send them advertising to get out the vote. And he also very cleverly, and this is still somewhat in dispute, he also realized one of the dark secrets of Facebook, which is that it is more economically efficient to suppress votes than to get out the vote. And so he was able to, we think, effectively use advertising to make people who are on the fence about Hillary Clinton not go to the polls. That's all legal. It's just a little dark. That is totally right. And I think another very valid point is that he he or his team really understood how algorithm works, how, how algorithms respond best on social media. And mm -hmm. there's no question that algorithms respond best to hate than love. If, if he was to use messaging around, you know, you, you should love America mm -hmm. and we should love one another. And it would, it would never garner the same sort of response as language around invasion. Yeah. I mean, one of the great mysteries to me, and I think one of the great challenges for the technology industry is whether that is ineluctably true and whether it would be possible mm -hmm. to have a newsfeed algorithm and to have the core algorithms that drive these platforms do the opposite and actually to foster serious conversation and to foster more cerebral candidates and to promote love over hate and division. But that's not the way they work now. I mean, there's a really interesting question, which is, Facebook's whole business model is based on slicing and dicing us into ever smaller groups, right? Identifying me as, you know, a male of my age in my location with my interests, slicing and dicing. And slicing and dicing is the opposite of bringing people together. And so I've always wondered at sort of a core philosophical level whether the way the Facebook business model works, which is dividing people into ever smaller groups, helps foster a political system in which we are divided into ever smaller and more resentful groups. It is an ingenious model, there's no doubt. Right? I can remember back to 2009, 2010, when we were just using Facebook with WeTransfer and building up a community, and we could reach that community for free. Yeah. You know, we, you, you were basically collecting you know, fans and likes, and our sort of goals were around how many likes could you better get on a post and how could you build a, a community of followers that was in the you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands, whatever else. Today, to reach that same audience, you now have to pay for it. And, we, and we, it, we built it for them and then actually now paying for it back. It's genius. <laughs> they're, very, they're very smart at how, uh, how their capitalism works. And, you know, we've had a similar thing in the media industry where, you know, the media industry is constantly banging on Facebook and talking about how Facebook has you know, captured all the advertising model and it's driven all the local newspapers out of business. And some of that is true, but it's also true. You know, I used to work at the New Yorker. What was the most effective tool that the New Yorker had for getting new subscribers? We advertised on Facebook, right? Because right. you can find somebody who hasn't subscribed to the New Yorker, who beats whatever characteristics are likely to indicate that they have a high propensity to subscribe. You target an ad to oh, them. In in incredibly intelligent. It is fact, though, that something around these numbers vary, but something like 80 cents, 87 cents on the dollar is spent between Google and Facebook. 
for you as a as a journalist and for you as a publication, you're reliant on these channels in order to bring in new new users, new eyeballs, new new readers, and so are we. It's it has very much become a monopoly, oligopoly. Yeah, it's very much so. It's you know the relationship between Facebook and Google and the news media is so utterly vexed because we rely on them to bring in traffic. So in a way, we want to be friends with them. We compete with them for advertising and they basically win most of the advertising. So in that way, we're enemies. We cover them relentlessly. We look for the best stories. We write as, as I did. We write long investigative pieces into them And then when we publish those stories, we try to use the platform to drive as many readers as possible to them. (laughs) It's it's fascinating, right? And um, I'm with you. At a certain point, I had got to the conclusion that I no longer wanted to do anything with Facebook personally. Um, So I I left Facebook and, and I was of the conclusion that it would make better sense for everybody if we were to, you know, all leave. And then doing research around um, my book, it was clear to me that there's a whole massive ecosystem of companies and jobs built around Facebook. We don't want that to go away. And it's so big and we created this thing that I think it is fundamental that we act and try to operate and set some conditions for what, you know, responsible Facebook usage looks like. And I think that's very important for, for the media world too, right? And especially as Facebook moves from potentially being just a platform to being a publisher itself? I mean, that's a good question. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Is Facebook a publisher? <laughs> I mean, that's one, of the, that's one of the hardest questions about Facebook. There's always been this debate of, is Facebook a publisher or is Facebook a platform? And in a way, of course, they're just a platform, right? There's nobody actually writing stories on Facebook. It's just a bunch of engineers and product managers making decisions about how the code works. But on the other hand, right. of course, they're a publisher because... That's where a large number of people get their news. And when you think about Facebook as not just the core Facebook app, but you think of it as the whole Facebook company, which includes Instagram, WhatsApp, even Oculus, it's even more important as a publisher. I always thought of it as a platisher, um, both a publisher and a platform. Now it is very much moving a little bit more in the publisher direction. It's going to create a whole section on the site, which will be for curated news. They're going to hire journalists who curate that news by hand. So they will be a little more of a publisher. I mean, the most interesting thing to me about the debate is that during the crucial years for Facebook, during the years when all that has happened in the last couple couple of years has been set in motion, they took what I think was a somewhat irresponsible position of acting like a publisher, but pretending they were only a platform and thus not taking the responsibilities that publishers have. So one of the differences is that a platform has no responsibility for content, whereas a publisher has responsibility to make sure that what you write is accurate, that you abide by the ethical and moral standards of your readers. And Facebook, to a small degree, did follow that, right? They said no nudity on the platform, and they set up all their algorithms to make sure there was no nudity um, which was great, help make the, you know, make it make Facebook a better place. But they took no responsibility towards whether people were publishing information that was false or hateful. Um, right. That is something, a position in which they have changed in the last two years, and they started putting a lot of effort into the very hard and vexing questions of how to 
verify information, how to stop hate, how to stop the content that you definitely don't want. But it took them a long time to get going on that. I mean, there's a lot of question marks around, you know, whether they're doing it well, right, or whether they're doing it effectively. And Casey Newton has written quite a lot of good articles too around, you know, some some of the issues with those moderators in Facebook and the conditions under which they're having to work because of the amount of content on Facebook that is seriously questionable still, right? I mean, nudity is low-hanging fruit. That's That's pretty easy, but that's not really some of the major issues of some of the content that's sitting on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, the content that sits on Facebook that they try to knock out, and I'm not going to remember every category, but nudity, terrorism, hate speech, there's, you know, category upon category, each of which has a certain level of difficulty in identifying and each of which requires to some degree computers programming and artificial intelligence and some requires actual humans analyzing it day to day. One of the interesting things you mentioned, Casey's reporting. He you know, writes for The Verge, has a wonderful newsletter, and he did a great investigation into how hard the life of you know, the contract moderators who you know, scan through Facebook looking for false news and amazing details about how you know, once you've read 20 stories about how the moon landing is faked, even if you're trying to identify false information, you ultimately come to believe that the moon landing was faked. Right. But it was one of the things where it actually made me somewhat sympathetic to Facebook. If you read Mindfred stories, they're not, here are all the flaws in Facebook and we've you know, found all the dark you know, elements. There are parts of that. But really what was motivating me are, here are the complicated trade-offs that Facebook faces and here's how it's tried to deal with them, some of which are impossible. So we, as the press and as the public, say, Facebook, you have to knock this horrible stuff off the platform. And so they say, okay, fine, we will do that. And we'll hire 50,000 people to knock this horrible stuff off the platform or 10,000 people. And then we write, hey, all those people you've hired to knock stuff off the platform, that's a miserable job. Well, certain contract workers for Facebook are being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. It's related to what they do for the company. In an article for The Verge, Casey Newton chronicles the working conditions of Facebook's human content reviewers. And so they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. And right. we demand that they remove content. And then we ask them to uphold standards of free speech. You know, for a long time, they got a free pass. And now they're in a... They're in the opposite situation. And so I loved looking at those trade-offs. The greatest, the most interesting trade-off to me, and this is the one that has caused a real internal tension at trade-off, is the tension between privacy and security. So as the public, we all demand that there's not bad content on Facebook and also that all of our information is kept private. But those two things are actually contradictory because if Facebook keeps everything private, it's much harder for them to identify the bad content. If they're not looking and storing and analyzing everything you post, how are they going to figure out if you posted something bad? And so there are ways that you can have both of those things. You can have both privacy and security through smart builds, but there are also moments where they come into conflict, right? WhatsApp. WhatsApp is very private, but it's also a great platform for spreading hate, for bullying, for spreading misinformation, because it's much harder to track because it's all end-to-end -end encrypted. Facebook right. is a platform where it's much easier to you know, suss out bullying and to find all that horrible stuff, but that's because it's not as private. And so those are the trade-offs and the tensions at the company that motivated a lot of my reporting on it. In my book, I interviewed somebody called Robbie Stamp, who worked with Douglas Adams on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And um, 
Robbie's written a lot and does a lot around AI and VR. And we were talking about Mark Zuckerberg and um, whether or not he was fit for the job, whether he was naive. And in um, in Robbie's viewpoint, he was saying that he he really felt that for the scale of the company, for the responsibility that they had, that Mark Zuckerberg was very naive. And if you contrast this with somebody he was referencing, was the CEO of HSBC Bank, that role, running a big bank that's global, that has you know hundreds of thousands of employees and customers all over the world, they have to deal with regulation and you know politics. They come under massive scrutiny. They have to do huge reporting. There's an incredibly rigorous board that sits behind the decision-making that they have. None of that really seems to be in place to manage a company with the scale and the impact that Facebook has. Would you agree with that, that someone, um, Robbie's take of Mark Zuckerberg is that he's potentially naive? Certainly when you look at him in the congressional hearing, he comes across as somebody who looks like he's caught in the headlights. I'll say a couple of things on this. One, I think Zuckerberg is, he is quite smart. I think he... Clearly. <laughs> I think he does genuinely care about the company. I think that right. the the sometimes public perception that he's, you know, mendacious and rapacious, you know, I don't believe that. I think he is a sincere, smart, hardworking fellow. But I think that your and Robbie's critique is absolutely correct in that he didn't set up structures in which he could be held accountable. Right? He changed the share structure of Facebook so that he has right. all of the power in perpetuity. He has a board that is unlikely to question him. It's people who have invested in him. It's people who adore him. I mean, it's smart people. You know, Mark Andreessen is incredibly smart. You could not have someone smart on your board, but Mark Andreessen has been utterly devoted to Mark Zuckerberg since the beginning and has made billions of dollars off of him. It's hard to see him really holding Mark to account. So I think that Zuckerberg made a mistake in creating a board that would be subservient to him and creating a culture in which he had so much power and relatively few people who could question him. Right. And what do you think, you know, he needs to do going forward? Because we've talked a bit about you know, current state of affairs. At one point in 2016, after the elections, you wrote that he potentially broken Western democracy. There are things that have been put in place to help fix Facebook and to, you know, to help rectify some of the situation. But I mean, do you, th do you think is enough? And do you think that there is a plan in place that could actually take Facebook to a place that would satisfy a lot of the, the naysayers? I think Facebook doesn't get enough credit for how hard they've worked in the last two mm -hmm. years. Um, so my critique for a long time of Facebook has been that they did not realize the pernicious externalities of their newsfeed. They did not realize that the way that newsfeed had been tuned could break Western democracy, right? It could lead to, as we talked about earlier, candidates with high emotional resonance, perhaps motivated and campaigning on hatred. And they didn't see that what they had done could lead to that. Since then, they have, and they've worked on adjusting the algorithm um, and they've hired lots of contractors to knock bad stuff off the platform. I have no doubt that the executives who remain at Facebook every day are thinking through these problems, trying to solve them. What I don't know, and what we won't know, probably for a couple of years, is whether the ship just was too far out to sea, and whether it's even possible to you know turn it around and get back to shore. Right.
in your criticism um, and times where you've been critical of Facebook, were you ever worried that, you know, you would be shut down? That was complicated. I mean, I have a pretty positive relationship with most of the executives at Facebook. And perhaps it's, perhaps I'm misreading them, um, but I actually think that they respect our coverage. You know, what I did with that story, what Fred and I did is we, we fact-checked every line in that story. You know, and I read every fact to uh, people at Facebook and allowed them to answer it. You know, and I stood with Sheryl Sandberg, you know, at, a, at an event, you know, right before the first story was published where she said, I hear you've got an inaccurate story. And I said, okay, well, here are the nine things that you people are challenging. Let's just discuss them all. She said, okay. And so then we went and we talked about them all. And there were things that I was planning to publish and they convinced me weren't true. And there were things that they said weren't true that I know are true and that we put in the story. There was one thing, and this is one of the great mysteries. So about a month after the first Facebook story that Fred and I wrote ran, all of Wired's traffic on Facebook dropped by 80%, all of a sudden, right? So traffic would, you know, it fluctuates, but it just plummeted downwards. And it stayed there for a month. And I was quite confused. And so I wrote to the people I know on Facebook. And I said, what the heck is going on? And they said, oh, we don't know. There's nothing going on. I said, no, no, something is going on. Here's the traffic. You know, it takes a little while to realize it's not just a bad day. And ultimately, we sorted it out, or ultimately, we got an answer. And the answer was that a wired advertiser had violated Facebook's rules in a post that they had targeted at wired readers. They had published that post in 20 different ways. So a whole series of violations had been registered against Wired and then we'd been classified as a spam site. And the post that they said had violated their terms looked like it potentially did violate their terms. But there are a number of people I work with who thought, well, come on, that's such garbage. They're just, they're, it's retribution. And ultimately I asked, ultimately I came to believe that really they had just made an error and had classified us as a spam site and undid it. I ultimately came to believe that because I tried really hard to find somebody who could tell me that they had done that as retribution. And I have a lot of good sources at Facebook, people who are high up and will answer any question I give and I believe will give me honest answers. And they all said, no, we couldn't do that and we didn't do that. I tried hard to find somebody who could even say we could have done that. Secondly, you know, during that period when our Facebook traffic had dropped to zero, I was given an exclusive interview with Mark Zuckerberg because they wanted him to talk to a journalist who would be trusted in what they wrote. It was right when the Cambridge Analytica stuff hit. And so maybe three of us got interviews with Zuckerberg through print publications. I don't know why Facebook would destroy Wired's traffic if they're trying to use Wired as a way to get Mark Zuckerberg's message out. So ultimately, I didn't think that they had done that to us in retribution. But I did include it in the narrative of the second story because regardless of the intention, it shows the power and it shows yeah. why journalists fear them, because they could do that to a publication that was critical of them. And that is a thing that hangs over all of the coverage of Facebook. And that's a concern, right? When you have somebody who runs the company who has ultimately complete say over the business. Yeah, oh, absolutely, right? So Mark Zuckerberg could unilaterally declare, we want to drive Wired out of business, right? And they could cut off our traffic. You know, right now it's because Facebook has deprioritized news on the platform for lots of reasons. It's a relatively small percentage of traffic, but it used to be a third. That's a lot of money. You know, if you lose a third of your traffic now, it's let's say it's a sixth or an eighth or a small number. 
um, it would still have a big effect. They could make it impossible for us to advertise on it. They could not advertise in, you know, Wired. I have a personal page, right, where there are 70,000 people who you know, follow Nicholas Thompson and they see Wired stories and they could cut that off, right? They could do a fair amount of damage if they wanted to. And what would hold them to account? Well, the only thing that would hold them to account is some employee would tell me and then I would write a story and people who use Google would read that story and be upset with Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Can you reference another era or another time when there was an equivalent media power at play? I mean, the amount of power that Facebook has over news probably is like the amount of power over news that the three major American networks had 30 years ago where, they, where there was no cable, um, I guess 40 years ago. Three of them just dominated that. But what's different is that Facebook is global. So... You know, we've mostly been talking about Facebook as an American phenomenon, which is what I understand and know the most. Right. But of course, Facebook is vastly more influential in, say, the Philippines than it is in the United States. It's equally as influential in many parts of the world. It's probably slightly less influential in Europe because Europeans sort of caught on to the problems with Facebook before the Americans did. But there are a lot of places in the world where Facebook is essentially the Internet, right? It is very hard to access the Internet in the Philippines without Facebook. Um and so their global power far exceeds that of, you know, anything we've had before. Fascinating. When we started off, we said that we didn't want to just slate Facebook. You know, it is a tool that everybody lives with. It has been a force for incredible good as well as, um, you know, a force for some less good. WeTransfer has benefited massively from Facebook over the years. You know, we've seen a huge amount of growth for us through Facebook. And when we asked our users, because we did have the question, you know, should we continue using it? What do you think? You know, our user base loves Facebook. For you within Wired, are there some best practices? What would you say, you know, as an, as an advertiser, as a publisher using Facebook would be best practices going forward? I'll answer that in a couple of ways. One of which is that I feel like I have a responsibility and we all have a responsibility to make social media better and that... We have a responsibility through what we post, through what we share, through what we like to try to make conversations better, to try to make democracy better, to try to make these platforms less about hate and more about love, right? As we talked about earlier. And that's hard, right? Because there's always a temptation, right? You get in that sort of lizard brain mode and you want to post something angry or fight with somebody. Um, so I feel like as individuals, just in what we contribute, because the platforms and the algorithms are based on the way we act. We have trained them. And so each one of us has, you know, one zillionth of a percent of influence on it, but we should make that influence good. So I feel like as a user, we have that responsibility. So if I read a thoughtful piece in another publication, I share it. Um, so that's on the content side, right? And we should be very careful, very careful about resharing or giving oxygen to anything that might be potentially misinformation or might be false or might be set up to distort the way society works. I think that's, that's important. As advertisers and as citizens, we also have responsibilities to think about privacy, right? So on sort of a personal protection side, I have gone carefully through Facebook's privacy settings, which are accessible and are available. And I've been careful about what data they can take from me, what data, what data they can't. And I think we have a responsibility there. As advertisers, I think that we should be mindful of 
whether we're invading people's privacies in ways that they don't want, if we're buying lists that people may not be aware that they're on, if we're using the power of those platforms to manipulate them or make them take actions that are against their better interest, then that's not good. If we are through hook and by crook influencing children, we shouldn't be there. We shouldn't be doing that. But I think we should use Facebook. You know, if I had a business that was trying to attract users, there are many different businesses I can imagine that I would want to use Facebook. I will certainly be using Facebook to drive people to subscribe to Wired. If I worked on the We Transfer marketing team, I would certainly be using Facebook. I would be using Instagram and I'd be using WhatsApp. I'd be thinking about Oculus. So I think we should engage with the platform. I think we should hold the executive's feet to the fire. I think we should demand that they responsibly make the platform evolve. And I think we should all try to be our best selves on social media. Well, I have to say I agree 100%. <laughs> and I love your uh, your call to action of holding executives' feet to the fire, I think, with Facebook and actually with any of the you know the tech giants. I think that's the case. Great. Um, Nick, it was a massive pleasure talking to you. This is a topic I find fascinating. Hopefully, uh, you know, listeners do as well. And I look forward to reading continued stories about your <laughs> quest and interest in Facebook and other social media. Well, thank you so much, Damien. It was a real pleasure to talk with you and thank you for having me here. And that's our episode today. Special thanks to Nicholas Thompson for sharing his knowledge and expertise. Let's hope Facebook doesn't seek retribution. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby. Our supervising producer is Jonas Santi. And our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Influence is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. It really helps spread the word. And you can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Neon Hum Media. Thank you so much for listening, and go back to Facebook. This episode of Influence is brought to you by Plugged In, the permanent headphone that you never need to take out. Now, I'm joined today by Matt, who heads up our sales team, and Matt's had the privilege of demoing this product for the last two weeks. Matt, what was so amazing about it? You see, Damien, Plugged In is a revolutionary concept of never actually having to take out your iPad so that you're constantly working even when you're sleeping. It's beautiful. So I've seen pictures of skin growing over the top of these permanent installations it doesn't it sounds awfully painful oh no 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 it's 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 quite excruciating for about the first 48 days uh, by by day 50 you know you've become quite immune to the feeling of having a microchip inside of your head so you know once you beat it through that first those first 49 days it's smooth sailing afterwards and what do they cost um right now they're fifty thousand dollars and that comes with the extensive antenna so you can be tracked on at any moment in time by your spouse by your employer. Amazing. Um, by the FBI. And what was it called again? That's Plugged In. P-L-U-G-G-E-D-I-N. And it's wonderful. And I believe for the first 50,000 listeners, we have a free pair to give away. That's correct. As long as you can find somebody to insert them inside your eardrum, which there's only one actual hospital in Madagascar right now. But, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's changing very quickly right now. And you have to travel at your own cost. Correct. And make sure, kids, you read the terms and conditions and all conditions apply. It could damage your health, your hearing, and your brain. Plugged in. Plugged in.